Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Zach Twomley and I am your host forever. This is part 8 of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, so if you're just jumping in and you haven't really listened to the earlier episodes, then I'd recommend you do that, or you probably won't know what's going on. But if you're coming in here for your regular fix of When Diplomacy Fails, then thanks for downloading this, guys, and thanks for joining me once again. Your support and your appreciation for what I do goes a long way, so keep those encouraging words and messages and monies coming because they all make a huge difference to my mood and of course my motivation. In case you didn't know, this past week on Monday I started a new job. So how's the job going? Well it's going great. It's going really well and I really would like to thank you guys for the messages of congratulations and support because to be honest a lot of you guys have been here since the beginning and you followed my journey personally and professionally and this is an important part of that professional journey because it's my first real step on the rung of the ladder of professionalism. So it's very exciting and it really goes to show what I can do and maybe that I don't need Cambridge for the moment at least. And do you know what? I'm not even sad about Cambridge anymore. I'm more excited to kind of get used to the job that I'm in and make it my own and I'm really looking forward to doing that. It's been a little bit harder than I expected to try and balance podcasting with the new job, mainly because the new job's so like podcasting, because it's quite labor and research and time intensive, and I'm kind of sitting in the same place that I would have sat at for the podcast. So it's a balancing act. But if you knew me at all, and you knew the lengths I go to to put this podcast out there, it's always been a balancing act, so nothing much has changed there. I'll get used to it, and you shouldn't worry about too much things being cut out or our regular programming being interrupted. If all goes according to plan, everything should be fine. One little thing, guys, I got a bit of fan mail this week and was reminded of the fact that at the State of the Podcast address, I said that I was going to release a new show, hopefully in the near future. To cut a long story short, it's called The Weekly Fail and it's on Current Affairs. I still do want to do that, and I still very much want to launch the show, but I'm trying to see whether or not it'll be feasible, so expect more updates on that as time goes by. For the moment, I'm feeling quite positive about it, but I wouldn't hold my breath just in case something should come up. But if you guys would like to be a special correspondent in whatever country you're in, then by all means send me some mail and let me know, because the more people we have in this, the merrier. It'd be great to have loads of listeners from loads of different countries telling me what's going on and what's happening in their country. 
and together we could be historically and politically living happily ever after. Which, of course, as we know by now, is the dream. Anyway, sorry for all this rambling, but there was a little bit of housekeeping that I figured you guys needed to know, so back to our usual schedule. Episode 8 of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Thanks very much for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 8. If I didn't scare you off from singing the introduction last time, then thanks for joining us once again. So in the last episode, we delved into the complicated and hypocritical world of British justification for war with the Dutch. More specifically, we further explored the fifth column in British society, the Anglican Royalists, a cadre of individuals who defined themselves based on their loyalty to the crown and their stringent belief in particular religious and economic policies. It was quite a heavy episode, so apologies if you guys were lost along the way, but it did contain an important number of clarifications for us, as far as British society was concerned, and it should set us up well in the future as we come across more Anglican royalists committed to the cause of war. Such individuals as we saw were rife with contradictions and hypocrisies, but this didn't stop them attaining high levels of influence, or from gaining adherence to their cause, most notably in James, the Duke of York. These Anglican royalists, just to recap, had centred their scheming behind the Royal Company of Adventurers trading into Africa, which we've simply dubbed the African Company for the sake of convenience. In this episode, we'll see how this expanded level of influence and strong ambitions within the Anglican royalists affected the actual outbreak of the war, when over the course of a few months these individuals managed to persuade Charles II of the need to strike against the Dutch. So let's begin. Whoever commands the ocean commands the trade of the world, and whoever commands the trade of the world commands the riches of the world, and whoever is master of that commands the world itself. John Evelyn, British gentleman and member of Charles II's court, writing in his book, Navigation and Commerce, Their Origin and Progress, 1674. The presentation of the report in late April 1664 after a month's work by the Committee of Trade argued that a number of factors were to blame for the general decay of British trade profits and opportunities across the world. Heavily influenced by the arguments and findings of Anglican royalists who saw the Dutch boogeyman in every problem that Britain faced, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that this report played a large role in justifying the necessity of war with the Netherlands before it became too late to reverse the downward trends. 
The gossip by this stage was all about war, as Samuel Pepys, famed for his diary which was constructed during this period, noted when he met with one of his friends, a hemp merchant, who told him, Very well and in much detail of all the good effects in some kind of a Dutch war and conquest, which I did not consider before, but the contrary. This is, in his words, The trade of the world is too little for us two, therefore one must down. Secondly, that though our merchants will not be the better husbands by all this, yet our wool will bear a better price by vaunting our clothes, and by that our tenants will be better able to pay rents, and our lands will be more worth, and all our own manufactures, which now the Dutch outvie us in. But was it as clear-cut an argument in favour of war as this merchant friend of Pepys claimed? History has tended to deem the wars waged against the Dutch by the English as merchants' wars, or at least wars that the British waged because they sought to gain markets and commercial influence at the Dutch expense. We've already learned in episode 26 that the first Anglo-Dutch war was more complicated than that. We will learn the same about the third, so it should come as little surprise that, as usual, the mission of putting events into boxes doesn't work in the event of the second war either. Rather than being all for the war, the vast majority of merchants feared the outcome of a war with the world's premier trading power in the Dutch. Such a stance against outright war with the Dutch was balanced by the radical views of the African Company, made up of Anglican royalists determined for a showdown. The distinction between the different companies is an important one, as Stephen Pincus in his article, which we drew on heavily in our last episode, explained when he wrote, Unlike the East India Company and the Levant Company, which both retained sizable numbers of dissenters after the Restoration, the meetings of the African Company were dominated by men who had impeccable royalist credentials from the 1650s and were prominent in attacks on nonconformists in the 1660s. Naturally, the African Company would not decline to accept money from those with whom it differed ideologically, but such men were not allowed to participate in making company policy. An important prerequisite for studying the era of the 1660s is to remember just how utterly divided Britain was, specifically in terms of religious persuasions. This had led to a hardening of attitudes down south in England, where disinherited or previously repressed Anglicans argued for Charles to cease from implementing his ideal policy of toleration of all denominations and implement instead laws pertaining to the creation of a uniform church across the British Isles. The idea went that the more unified the people were in their belief, the more secure the nation would be. Additionally, the corollary to this view was that the denominations other than that, favoured by the state church in England at least, Anglicanism, harboured seditious intentions towards the government, and thus had to be stamped out. Conveniently, stamping out other belief systems because they posed a threat to the unity of the state killed the other bird, that of revenge, with the same stone. Charles II, though he had genuinely desired tolerance, and this seems to be the general consensus of historians, is that Charles II was quite a tolerant monarch for his age, he was no match for the deep-seated divisions of his kingdom, or the commons, or the lords, and was forced to bow to the Anglican-dominated parliaments. The last episode was about explaining how this developing exercise in repression was transplanted to the foreign sphere and aimed at the Dutch. To understand this process, we have to understand the mindset of the Anglican royalists 
and Steven Pincus helps us do this when he writes Those in the political nation who were most committed to the Anglican and Royalist cause, precisely those people who had reached the pinnacle of political influence in the winter of 1663-4, were convinced that the religiously pluralist and politically republican Dutch polity was the source of England's political and economic woes. Just as the Cavalier Parliament passed the Conventicle Act and repealed the Triennial Act in the spring session of 1664 in order to minimise the power of religious dissent and political republicanism at home, so the April trade resolution sought to humble that European state which was associated with these twin evils in the Anglican Royalist mentality. The Committee of Trade itself, which provided the report and thus the necessary justification for war which broke out the following year, originated as a small-time group of statesmen tasked with investigating the complaints of the wool industry, whose profits and situation had deteriorated over the previous years. After a few weeks, this mission was expanded to investigate the general decay of trade. While initially balanced with a fair number of unbiased individuals, The committee doubled in size upon the dedication to its new task, and subsequently became packed with, surprise surprise, anti-Dutch Anglican royalists, who in turn established close connections to the Crown, Charles II's court, and James the Duke of York. Cambridge historian Paul Seward, in his article The House of Commons Committee of Trade and the Origins of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, echoed this view when he noted... A few members of the Committee of Trade shared relevant commercial interests. Only 11 could be described as deeply involved in foreign trade themselves, but rather more possessed interests in those organisations most concerned to promote aggressive acts against the Dutch. Rather than seeing the report of the Committee as general grievances then, we should instead view it as another piece of Anglican Royalist propaganda. This is even more evident when we examine companies other than the African Company that presented their grievances as requested to the report by the Committee of Trade as it was being drawn up between March and April 1664. The Levant Company, which traded towards the Ottoman Empire, but also North Africa and the Mediterranean by proxy, listed a series of grievances against the Algerian pirates, greedy Venetians and the sneaky French up to 1664. No mention was made of the Dutch at all until a group specially appointed by the Levant Company to contribute findings to the Committee of Trade was created. And, yep, yeah, you guessed it, this group destined to report to the Committee of Trade and specially created for this task was packed full of Anglican Royalists. Similar stories occurred in the West and East India Companies as well as in the Muscovy Company with the result that the Anglican Royalists created a consensus in the commercial world which was completely at odds with either their size as a group or the actual grievances that the Dutch had genuinely caused these companies. Commercial rivalry, for sure, had made a number of company men identify the Dutch as problematic since the Restoration, but this happened no more than any other power who was identified as jeopardising company profits, and actually occurred less than complaints against the Venetians, the Genoese or the French. It was only once the Forum of the Committee of Trade was created that Anglican Royalists saw their chance to pack the rafters with their men and conspire to create the result which they wanted. And it is only then that the overwhelming argument in favour of stopping the Dutch before it was too late begins to be heard. 
To the untrained eye, it would have looked as though all the major chartered trading companies had agitated for war with the Dutch. And indeed, this led historians for many years to claim this exact fact. The reality, though, was that the Anglican royalists had skewed the report in their favour, and that they had thus achieved their greatest coup to date. Faced with such findings, how could Charles II ignore their arguments, and how could Parliament do anything other than condemn the Dutch? This skewed result proved to be the jolt in the direction of war which Britain needed, because once it was discovered that the merchant community had overwhelmingly voiced their approval of a war and had identified this solution to Britain's commercial woes, there was little to stop the tide of anti-Dutch feeling boiling over. Faced with the findings of the tainted report, a pro-war party began to grow in court, pointing to the findings of the April 1664 Committee of Trade Report as justification, and applying their own deep-seated resentments and beliefs to further bolster their pro-war arguments. Having been radicalised themselves by an increasingly bitter rivalry in West Africa, as they had tried to seize the Dutch markets without much success, the African company now disseminated this bitterness and radicalism to the rest of the merchant community through a curious conspiracy. Alongside the well-publicised report in April 1664 was another belief which had great staying power, that the Dutch would simply roll over rather than fight the British in another losing war. This belief counted too much on the history of success that Britain had had over their Dutch rival, and underestimated just how tenacious and determined that rival would be in round two. Much of the arguments of the pro-war party, as well as the Anglican fundamentalist royalists, rested on the notion that the war would be an easy one, and that while it may be costly at first, as all wars are, in time London would seize Dutch markets and shipping and claim for itself the position of master over the seas, thus ending the previous impediments to British trade, and bringing about a resurgence in profits in the process. A great source for examining the belief that the Dutch were running scared can be found in the correspondence of Sir George Downing, ambassador to The Hague. My lord, give me leave to tell you, Downing had written to the Earl of Clarendon in autumn 1663, DeWitt is now no way able directly nor indirectly downright nor by any devices, to engage this country in war with the King of England. He regularly added to this weighted view over the following months, when he insisted in November 1663 that DeWitt dreads a war. He remembers the last, but hopes to carry it by braving, and there is a terror upon the people, and particularly upon ye seamen, as to anything of that nature, and they can press no man in this country. And for the other provinces, DeWitt can get some of them to vote with him, so long as it costs them nothing. But they will have no war with the King of England, nor give one farthing to it, but especially upon such a point as that now remaining indifference. They have very little, and some of them no concern, in the East India Company, but DeWitt confidently believes the King of England will yield to them. He said as much, and this makes him so huff. Downing was certain that the Dutch would cave in rather than allow any disagreements to escalate into full-blown war. In March 1664, Downing insisted to Clarendon that if Britain merely made a show of suggesting that war was imminent, the Dutch would back down, and that to make the Dutch more diplomatically pliable, more pressure should be applied. 
If they see his majesty go about in earnest anything that looks like a resolution of falling upon them, as he may have reason to do here for his subjects, for however they talk big, as if they feared nobody, yet at bottom they are sensible, and think of what a business it would be for them to grapple with his majesty, and it is high time that they do end those differences which are depending here, nor was ever a fitter opportunity to obtain ye same. It is thus important to keep such beliefs in mind as 1664 wore on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Because above all in Downing's reports home, what he emphasized was the need for Parliament to unite behind pressuring the Dutch. A war need not necessarily be in the offing, Downing argued. The Dutch only needed to think that there was a plan for one in the pipeline, and they would surely back down. This bullying of the Dutch suited Charles, because he knew that finances within his realm were only beginning to come back on track since the restoration shake-ups. The House of Commons remained suspicious of any and all grants they offered the king, and Charles was granted consistently smaller sums of money for the day-to-day maintenance of the country than what he claimed to need. A further concern in the diplomatic sphere was the Franco-Dutch defensive alliance, which would ensure French intervention if London attacked the Netherlands first. To overcome this diplomatic complication, Anglican Royalists and the Duke of York argued for hostilities to begin if and when they did, in hazy overseas theatres, so that it would be harder for Louis XIV to judge who had fired first. The French, in any case, argued much of Charles's courtiers, did not want to fight a war against the British or alongside the Dutch. Such a thing would be unnatural. Charles was very quickly convinced, despite his original reservations, that whatever happened, his cousin would never go to war with him for the sake of the Dutch, thus further loosening his inhibitions. 
It was with loosened inhibitions that historians suspect Charles II was the perpetrator behind the original enlargement of the Committee of Trade that we examined, so that the members would orchestrate a packing of the committee with their ideological allies. Why would Charles do such a thing, you might be wondering, when war may not come supported by the House of Commons or enjoy support from home? This was answered by Charles's contemporaries, who claimed that Charles engineered the entire Committee of Trade incident to provide both evidence and justification for the war, and thus ensure he would get the funding from Parliament that he wanted. Anti-Dutch propaganda and the cadre of Anglican royalists that he'd come to associate himself with would sort out the rest. Samuel Pepys had indeed been told by one of the committee's members in late March 1664 that It seems the king's design is, by getting underhand the merchants to bring in their complaints in the parliament, to make them in honour begin a war, which he cannot in honour declare first, for fear they should not second him with money. At the same time as this, though, Britain's Secretary of State during the period, Mr. William Coventry, on a side note, this was a half-brother of George Coventry, who had gone to Sweden in search of the offensive Triple Alliance a few episodes back, he asserted that Charles didn't want war per se, he merely wanted the Dutch to believe he wanted war so that they would back down. This feeds into what we learned earlier of the widespread belief among courtiers that the Dutch would roll over and give Britain what it wanted with a bit of heavy-handed bullying, as William Coventry then noted. Though perhaps they may not directly see fit, yet even this will be enough to let the Dutch know that the Parliament do not oppose the King, and by that means take away all their hopes, which was that the King of England could not get money or do anything towards a war with them, and so thought himself free from making any restitution, which by this they will be very deceived in. Paul Seward concluded that, though the months of intrigues may suggest an ambiguous policy on behalf of Charles, the king didn't want the war or general retreat from competition that either the African company or the Anglican royalists desired. Instead, in Seward's words, Charles hoped merely that the Commons' deliberations would persuade DeWitt to negotiate in earnest. The mission of persuading Johann de Witt, de facto Prime Minister of the Netherlands, to negotiate in earnest can be seen in Charles's other activities in the previous episodes. The creation of an offensive triple alliance with the likes of Denmark and Sweden was not done in preparation of war, Seward claims, but as part of the policy of piling on the pressure against de Witt so that he would crack and give Britain better terms. Even in a letter Charles sent to his sister Manette, who lived in the French court and was married to Philip, brother of Louis XIV, exposes his true wishes. In June 1664, Charles wrote, Sir George Downing has come out of Holland, and I shall now be very busy upon that matter. The Dutch states keep a great bragging and noise, but I believe when it comes to it, they will look twice before they leap. I never saw so great an appetite for war as is, in both this town and country, especially in the Parliament men, who, I am confident, would pawn their estates to maintain a war. But all this shall not govern me, for I will look merely at what is just and best for the honour and good of England, and will be very steady in what I resolve. Charles was right in one sense. Parliament had offered all necessary monies in support of any eventuality in late April 1664, following the reading of the report by the Committee of Trade in the House of Commons. 
So dangerous were the Dutch Parliament seemed to believe that all MPs had a duty to their realm to approve the necessary taxation required to fund whatever came from the Dutch as a response, even war. Some MPs had certainly been roused by the report's findings, but it would be a mistake to tar all Parliament men with the same brush. Some simply wanted to scare the Dutch into making a resolution, while others believed war was necessary. The point was, if the Dutch were to take Britain seriously, it had to appear as though London was united and ready for anything. All such acts were based on the mistaken belief, of course, that the British were capable of bullying the Dutch at all. Dewitt had clearly showed himself capable enough of disarming Charles's diplomatic efforts, sending Frederick III of Denmark into his country estate as he pondered his next move in foreign relations in late February 1665. By that point, Dewitt's exploits had reached their peak. He had managed to expertly counter Charles's threats with many of his own. Not only was the Netherlands poised to respond to British gunboat diplomacy by seeking its gunboats, but it could also suggestively wave its diplomatic success of the French defensive alliance in Charles's face. It was no surprise that by the time Charles's diplomatic plans were falling apart in early spring 1665, he had become more convinced of the actual need to strike. The plan to bully the Dutch had failed, and now Charles recognised that a real response in force would have to be made if the original threats made by his diplomats and courtiers were ever to be taken seriously again. So far then, we've discovered that Charles and his closest allies had essentially hijacked the report created by the more radical Anglican royalists with the aim of using it to scare and intimidate the Dutch. Everything Charles did from that moment seems to have been aimed at piling on more pressure in peacetime to get what he wanted. So what pushed Britain over the edge, and more importantly, what persuaded Charles to approve the war in early March 1665, which he had sought to avoid only the year before? The answer came from the series of events that occurred throughout the spring and summer of 1664. While Charles and co. had hoped that the report would cause a series of chain reactions, ending in the acceptance of the Dutch that they had to back down, from The Hague, George Downing was able to write home that, on the contrary, the Dutch had been very much offended at the findings of a skewed report, which claimed that they were all at fault for all of Britain's woes. Not only that, but the Dutch States General had approved plans for the fitting out of 12 hulking warships, previously on hold, in case of war. Rather than backing down, the tensions actually rose as Britain's bluff was called. From London, the essential Prime Minister, the Earl of Clarendon, was able to enlighten Downing on the scandalous impact of the reported exploits of Captain Robert Holmes. Who was Robert Holmes? Well, in November 1663, following a series of losses against the Dutch in West Africa, Holmes had been assigned the task by the African Company to maintain the right of his majesty's subjects by force and to kill sink take or destroy such as shall oppose you and to send home such ships as you shall so take holmes took these orders which were themselves somewhat incendiary and took them to mean that he would essentially have free reign in west africa ignoring all sense of protocol he threw caution and good practice to the wind capturing burning down and sinking everything with a dutch flag over the space of six months his reports home were at first a cause for celebration among the Anglican royalists, but when Charles found out he was aghast, Holmes had gone way too far. Not only had he more than surpassed his original orders, 
but he had made the Dutch seem like the victims and given them cause to reciprocate. When De Witt found out, he was furious at Holmes' exploits and immediately sent Admiral de Rutier to recapture all that Holmes had taken. Dutch pride and integrity was now at stake. National honour required that they answer back the British challenge or face dissolution abroad. Though de Rutier was careful not to be overzealous himself, only taking back what had been taken by the British in the first place, his very action required an additional reaction by Holmes, lest Britain would look very weak as well. As news of the British successes and then the Dutch responses filtered into court and became public knowledge across Britain, anti-Dutch feeling began to grow. The awkward attempts at creating better trade terms over the summer of 1664, when it was well known that Anglo-Dutch skirmishes were ongoing off the coast of Africa, made a lie of the entire proceedings. With both sides engaged in a game of tit-for-tat exchanges, tensions reached a boiling point by autumn, and Charles acknowledged that peace was increasingly difficult. The first side to call for a ceasefire in West Africa would appear the weaker power, and thus for the sake of appearance, the sporadic fighting there continued. Incredibly, the stakes were raised in August 1664 when a curious event happened that would have a dramatic impact on the history of America. On the 27th of August 1664, the Dutch governor of New Amsterdam surrendered to a British force of warships and soldiers five times his size. They had travelled under explicit orders from Charles II. New Amsterdam was now to be christened New York. Thus the capture and transformation of the Dutch bastion of trade and colonialism in America occurred even before Britain and the Netherlands were technically at war. Perhaps this was merely an extension of the colonial conflicts ongoing in West Africa, a tool which Charles hoped he could use to further bully the Dutch with and take the concessions he desired. Contrary to his expectations, this serious loss in America did not prompt the Dutch to back down, but stand up. By the end of 1664, a squadron of ships had been sent not to seize New York, but instead to capture Britain's trading centre in the Caribbean, Suriname. Suriname had been a trading post founded by the influential English traders, plantation owners and slave magnates, centred on Barbados. The Barbadian lobby group argued for a vast expansion of British trade across the Caribbean, and Suriname had been one of the earliest and most successful enterprises in this direction. What the Dutch did to the British position at Suriname was nothing short of incredible. Much like other campaigns in the war that was about to come, the Dutch attack was unpredictable, and when they did attack at Suriname by sailing right up to the harbour, as the resident British naval guard was on patrol, they sacked the settlement and then carted off the contents of the warehouses and burnt every lodging they could find. Charles was furious at this attack on the lucrative Caribbean trade enterprise, as were the Barbadian lobby, who petitioned Charles and his court for the undeclared war to become a fully-fledged one, so that it could be properly fought and Suriname returned. Charles had not wanted a war in the first place, and had gambled heavily on the Dutch backing down. But he had, by the onset of winter 1664, realised that war was inevitable, thanks mostly to the war fever among Parliament and the Anglican Royalists, who now waited for the moment when, and not if, Britain would declare war. 
The sign that Charles was finally accepting the military eventuality was shown in his attempts to neutralise the Franco-Dutch alliance, something which had long lurked in the back of his mind when he had considered a Dutch war. While Charles had long assured himself that war between his kingdom and that of his cousin would never break out in the name of the Dutch, Louis' assertions over the previous few months, assertions which had, by early 1665, given King Frederick III of Denmark cause to reconsider his entire foreign policy, deeply worried him. To counter his own concerns and that of his pro-French court, Charles began to fully make use of his family's connections. His sister was married to the brother of the king, after all, and soon she was bombarded by regular requests to pressure or at least talk with Louis about the possibility of abandoning the Dutch alliance. In addition to this, Charles had spent much ink attempting to persuade his sister, Manette, but in reality trying to persuade Louis, who would of course read these letters, that the so far undeclared war against the Dutch in Africa and America did not entail war, and thus Louis was not required to intervene. Charles could write until his hand ached, but he could not detach the Dutch ambassador from Louis in Paris, and the former proved remarkably effective at persuading Louis to stick to his guns of a Dutch alliance. Added to this, Louis's own sense of personal honour, an underrated fact in Charles's mind, also persuaded him to stick to the Dutch alliance. In desperation did Charles urge Manette to impress upon his cousin the seriousness of the situation, but Manette pleaded back that there was little she could do under the circumstances. Just as affairs were heating up abroad, so too did matters come to a head at home. On the 18th of December 1664, the Privy Council, Charles's most intimate group of councillors and statesmen, ordered that Britain's navy should attack Dutch shipping wherever possible, and the following week the spoils of war were towed into port. The contents of the Dutch ships, which had been sailing through Gibraltar, persuaded the Earl of Clarendon that the time for pretending was over. There was no point, Clarendon argued, in debating whether there was. War or no war, it has come upon us, and we were now only to contrive the best way of carrying it on with success, which could only be done by raising a great present sum of money. Others seemed to agree, but in the deeply factionalised Britain, Some even pointed the finger of blame at Clarendon. He had, after all, been building a large house on Piccadilly, using only the best and most expensive materials. Where once critics had called this Dunkirk house, referring to the profits gained from selling that port back to Louis, now they called it Holland House, implying that the true reasons for the war not yet erupting had more to do with a gentle injection of Dutch money in the pockets of Britain's chief minister, than it did for any monetary or strategic reasons in Charles's or his court's mind. Clarendon strenuously denied that he was under the Dutch influence or payback it, of course, but he was part of the conspiracy which pro-war and anti-government citizens saw around themselves. Fed by the hysteria of the era, many could just not understand why war had yet to break out. When Parliament approved the outrageous sum of £2.5 million for the war just before Christmas 1664, more than a few were suspicious that the money wouldn't even go to the right place, and was instead destined for Charles' lavish lifestyle or for another extension on Clarendon's house. Under additional pressure from his people and Parliament to prove that he was no longer simply bluffing, and that the insane grant which had been offered would actually be used for its intended purpose, the countdown to war in Charles's court began. 
First, Charles wanted to do one last thing to ensure his security. Try to resurrect the Triple Alliance that had been floundering under DeWitt's concerted pressure, and make up for the questionable French position by organising an English treaty with Spain. On their way back from Russia, a deputation of British diplomats were ordered to Sweden and then Denmark. When they arrived in Denmark, Frederick remained non-committal owing to his conflicting Dutch alliance, but did claim that he would maintain neutrality. Sweden was a similar story. The Swedish regency argued that if Britain declared war first, then their defensive alliance that they'd already signed would be void, but they too would seek to stay neutral in the war between Britain and the Dutch. Then Charles learned of a further disappointment. In late February 1665, the British ambassador to Spain reported that, far from being close to an agreement with the Spanish, which would see them intervene if France did, Madrid had just signed a fresh rake of commercial agreements with the French. Louis had evidently gotten there first, and Charles now had to accept that he was on his own. In December 1664, Charles had approved the sending of a fleet to West Africa to counter the Dutch. By late February 1665, he learned of disappointments from this theatre as well. The pressure had really, at last, become too much, and come what may, Charles felt forced to act to save the reputation of his kingdom and maintain the unity of his government. He declared war on the United Provinces of the Netherlands on the 4th of March, 1665, and just like that, the Second Anglo-Dutch War had, at last, erupted across the world. It was a decision which proved, arguably, to be the biggest mistake of his reign. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.